Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. And again, if you're newer with us, uh, one of the reasons why we're calling this Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times is because that's what the, the point of the book of Revelation is. It was meant to be a comfort to believers in the first century, uh, living through the chaos of wars and persecution, uh, but then also meant to be a comfort to believers really throughout all of church history and all the variety of trials that we experience. But the reason why so many of us don't experience the book of Revelation as comfort is because we get so wrapped up in all the symbolism in the book that we fail to actually get the message that the book is trying to give. And last week we looked at one of the great examples of that in chapter 9 with the locusts that come out uh, and all the various interpretations of that chapter that start talking about Apache helicopters or other more modern weaponry instead of trying to understand what the chapter is actually trying to teach us. And in today's passage in Revelation chapter 10, we not only uh, see some symbolism, some symbolism that we're actually meant to Uh, be able to interpret and understand. But this chapter really provides us a reason for why we need to be very careful as we start to walk through symbolism and very skeptical of our abilities to find those one-to-one correlations, our abilities to to understand what all the symbolism is meant to to tell us and meant to say, Uh, as well as giving us living during these end times, living during this church age, comfort, Again, in whatever it is that we're facing, whether it's a pandemic, uh, whether it's wars, whether it's persecution, whether it's uh, just the natural struggles that occur in, in living in a fallen world. And so we are going to read Revelation chapter 10. I encourage you to follow along if you have your Bibles open. And then we're going to look at just a few things that this scripture tells us that can be certain comfort in uncertain times. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed, as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. 
It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 through Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, just as Revelation 7 was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals. And just as the interlude in chapter 7 had to do with the church rather than the world, so does this interlude in chapters 10 and 11. And the main part of the interlude is in chapter 11, chapter uh, 11, verses 1 through 13, uh, which is a a relatively well-known passage that talks about two witnesses. Uh, But this is the, chapter 10 is the introduction to that main part of the interlude. It is an introduction to then what chapter 11 is going to say about what God is doing uh, in and with the church, just as chapter 7 told us what God was doing in and with the church, even as his judgments were being poured out upon the world. And there's uh, three, uh, or sorry, four comforts in this chapter that I think do bring us certain comfort in uncertain times as uh, John once again gets ready to tell us what God is doing in the church. And so the first of those is that Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. The chapter opens with John seeing another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Uh, just like the angel that we saw previously, uh, there are some uh, differing opinions as to who this angel is, uh, but I think this is where symbolism does help us to understand who this is, because all of the symbolism in this chapter points to this mighty angel being Jesus Christ. Uh, It points to this mighty angel being Jesus depicted as the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh uh, that we see in the Old Testament who turns out to be Yahweh himself. And you see that in how it describes him Uh, that he was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, that his face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire. Uh, These are very much how uh, how John describes Jesus elsewhere in the book, these visions that he has of him. This is how John describes Jesus, and now this is how John is describing this angel. But we also see it in the, the authority that this angel has. John sees that he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Uh, And this idea of uh, God putting his feet down really is a symbol of authority. And so the fact that this angel has one foot in the sea and one foot on land shows that this angel has authority really over the entirety of the created order. He comes down from heaven and then he stands upon the sea and the land, showing us that he has the authority Uh, over the entirety of the created order, heaven, earth, and the sea. Uh, And so uh, in how he's described and what authority he's given, uh, we see that nothing is outside his purview. Uh, But then he also has this scroll in his hand. Uh, And this scroll is likely a reference back to chapter 5 and the scroll that we saw in chapter 5. And in that chapter, the scroll is given to the lamb. The lamb is the only one worthy to take the scroll. And so the fact that this angel has a scroll uh, is likely a reference to this angel being 
Jesus. No one is worthy to have the scroll except for Jesus. And so Jesus is the one that we see here. And again, this is the comfort as we push into the seventh trumpet. And just like the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet is the end of the created order. Uh, these are parallel judgments. They're not happening one after another, the trumpets after the seals, but different ways of describing the same events, uh, different ways of describing God bringing forth his purposes on earth and bringing the created order to its end so that he might create it anew. And so the comfort that we are given is that Jesus is the one who has the authority. Jesus is the one who rules over the entirety of the created order. Uh, Jesus is the one who stands on the sea and on the land, who swears by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Uh, this is who is in control. And just as in the Old Testament, we see God swearing by himself, for there is no other name by which he, a greater name by which he can swear than his own. So you, hear, you see here Jesus swearing by himself. And so Jesus is on the throne. He is the one who is sovereign. Even it says that he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. Again, not only uh, how John elsewhere describes hearing Jesus' voice, but again, that reference to Jesus as the Lion of Judah. Yes, he is the Lion of Judah by virtue of the fact that he is a lamb who is slaughtered. Uh, but he is still the Lion of Judah. He is the one who reigns. And so in the midst of everything going on around us, and again, this is the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So this is uh, in the midst of all the judgments that are being poured out as earth is accelerating toward its end, uh, that we are given this comfort that Jesus is in control in everything that's going on, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of financial difficulties, in the midst of wars and persecution, in the midst of creation itself rising up against us, in the midst of anything else that we might be going through, Jesus is the one who is in control. Jesus is on the throne. But secondly, we see that Jesus is on the way. Jesus is on the way when this angel comes and John sees him in this majesty and this glory and uh, he, he stands on the sea and on the earth and then John hears him speak with the voice of a lion and he swears uh, by heaven. Uh, he swears by the one who lives forever, uh, who created the heavens and everything in it, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. What he says is there will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. John reminds us in the midst of everything going on, even as we progress further and further into human history and thus closer each day to the end than we were the day before. We are reminded that Jesus is on the way. There will no longer be a delay. And we said that way back at the beginning of the book. The idea of the second coming is not just that Jesus is coming, but that he's really already on his way. It is imminent. 
that Jesus' return is already in the works. And especially in the midst of these judgments that we see in Revelation, as again, this is the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and even in the midst of everything that we are experiencing in the year 2020, uh, is very much like the old uh, sermon by S.M. Lockridge that we also often quote and play clips from around Easter time. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And that's where we really find ourselves living in these end times, in this church age, in this period between Christ's second, his first coming and his second coming, is we really find ourselves living on Holy Saturday, a living in between these two cataclysmic events. And we see all the suffering and death around us. We see all the struggle around us. And yet we as believers in Jesus Christ know that Sunday is coming, that there is a day of resurrection right around the corner that is going to break through at any moment. And so this is the comfort that John sees, that John then gives us, is that in the midst of all of this judgment, in the midst of all this suffering, Jesus is not just on the throne, he's on his way. He is returning uh, and he is coming back to assert his rightful rule over the earth. He is coming back to make all things new. He is coming back to wipe away every tear from our eye. And so Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the way. And thirdly, Jesus is in the know. Jesus is in the know. Revelation 10.4, uh, after Jesus uh, speaks and it's the voice of a lion uh, in verse 3, and the seven thunders raised their voices. Then in verse 4, it says, When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. And so we see the seven thunders speak, and it's almost as though when we, when we see that, we should expect this new series of judgments. So first we had the seven scrolls, and right as the, the seventh seal, uh, we had the seven seals, and once the seventh seal is about to be broken, all of a sudden seven trumpets are introduced. And the seven trumpets retell the same story, this new series of judgments, telling a new facet of the story. And we said that the seals were uh, the last days told through the, the, told through the creation story, and the seven trumpets were the end times told through the Exodus story. And then we get to the seventh trumpet and the seventh trumpet is about to be blown and all of a sudden there's these seven thunders and we when we get to this point should almost expect now John to start telling us what the seven thunders are and in fact that's what John expects John hears the seven thunders and he goes to write down what the seven thunders are saying only he's told uh, not to write it down Jesus is set, instead seals the seven thunders up. And this is a reminder for us that as much as we are told in Scripture generally and in Revelation specifically about God's plan both for human history and for the end of human history, that we are not told everything. Our knowledge is extremely limited. Jesus is the one who knows 
all of it. Uh, he is the one as this mighty angel who is bringing it all about. He is bringing it to bear. But he does not tell us everything. And that might bristle us a little bit. Sometimes we can be overly familiar with Jesus. But uh, we are reminded in this chapter specifically that Jesus is on the throne. He is the one who knows everything. He is the one who knows his own plan. And he reveals to us only what we need to know. Only what he has condescended to let us know. And so we don't know what the seven thunders are. We don't know what they said. We don't know what John saw. And it's unlikely that John even saw all of it. But John at least saw this and heard this thing that we do not get to see or hear. And this should bring about humility in us in at least two areas. And the first is in the way we interpret the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons, if you remember back to the beginning of the series, why I'm not spending a lot of time trying to interpret the symbols uh, is because it is foolish of me to think that I am capable of correctly interpreting all the symbols. Uh, we need to be humble in our reading of the book of Revelation. We can't approach it with this confidence that we can figure out all the one-to-one correlations, that we can plot out a timeline, that we can predict a date, that we can identify who different people in the book are supposed to be, that we can then look around at our culture and apply all this stuff so that we can say, oh, this person is the Antichrist and and this date is when Jesus is coming back and uh, this weaponry is what the locusts are and, and all those sorts of things that we think we can figure all of this out and that we can know the mind of the Lord. And in this chapter, we are reminded that we are not given the full picture, that we are not given all the details, that we are not given the full plan of God, that there is much mystery that is still to come. And in fact, we don't know. We are told in verse 7 that the seventh angel will blow his trumpet. Then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets, uh, God has announced the end. We know where history is headed. Uh, it's very true, as we often sometimes say, that I've read the end of the book and we win. Like We, we know that Jesus come, is coming back. We know in certain regards uh, what the end is going to be. But we don't really know how we're getting there. We don't know when we're getting there. And the book of Revelation doesn't tell us that. It gives us glimpses. It helps us to to know little by little what God is doing in the midst of everything that we experience. It brings us the comfort that even in the midst of all this, Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is on the way. But then it also reminds us that only Jesus is in the know. We are not in the know. We are creatures and we do not know the mind of our Creator. And so this should bring about a humility in us as we read the book of Revelation, as we uh, come to terms with what our view of the end times are, what our terms of predictive prophecy in Scripture is. We should approach that with a humility because we don't have all the details. But then, secondly, it should bring about humility in our ability to correctly figure out what God is doing in history. 
Yes, nothing happens in human history outside of God's purview. No leader rises to power without his say-so. It is God who raises up kings and kingdoms and God who brings them down. But what he is doing, what he is at work doing by raising up a certain king or kingdom or bringing a certain king or kingdom down is not necessarily ours to know. What he's doing by allowing a pandemic or a natural disaster or any, anything else to afflict us is not necessarily ours to know. And yet, as 21st century American evangelicals, we start to talk about these things with a great amount of confidence. We know exactly why God raised the president to power. And hey, it was for our power. Or hey, we know exactly why God allowed this natural disaster to hit. And hey, it was to pour judgment on the people that we don't like. And we assert with great authority and confidence things that we cannot know. Because the Bible never tells us why specific things happen. We might be able to get some broad principles as to what God does in the midst of suffering and what he's working out in our individual lives. But we are not told what God is doing in specific acts of human history. And so we need to be very humble in our discussion of these things. We need to be very humble in our ability to look at history, to look at current events, and to understand what God is doing. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is a good reminder in this area where Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And even now, as we are reading the book of Revelation, studying the book of Revelation, and as we look at the world around us, at the culture around us, at current events, we are looking as through a mirror dimly. We are uh, looking with a very limited perspective. We don't get the whole picture, and we are not given the whole picture. And so we need to be humble in knowing that we don't know it all, but we know the one who knows it all. And so we'll trust him with it. And so there's this, this picture that uh, Jesus is in the know, that, but we're not. We are not given everything. We are given three specific series of judgments to help us interpret the times, but we're not given all of them. There's at least these seven thunders that are withheld from us. And so we see that Jesus is on the throne See that Jesus is on the way, that Jesus is in the know, and finally, we see that Jesus is at the head. That Jesus is at the head. As I mentioned before, this interlude ultimately is about what God's doing in and with the church during these end times, during this church age, as uh, all the things that we see around us is God working out his purposes in human history. Well, what about the church? And we do see here in this chapter, uh, Jesus as the head of the church, that Jesus, um, that the church follows in the footsteps of Jesus, so to speak, during its time on the earth. I mentioned earlier that in Revelation 5, Jesus is given 
a scroll. He is the only one worthy to take this scroll, the scroll that lays out God's purposes for the earth, uh, that, that lays out what is occurring throughout human history between his first coming and his second coming. And that scroll kind of makes another appearance here in chapter 10, except here it's a smaller scroll. Uh, the, the mighty angel who we said was Jesus held a little scroll opened in his hand, and John is told to go and take it and eat it. And the idea does seem to be that John here is representing the church uh, that then will come back into the picture more in chapter 11. And it identifies John and, and the church that he represents with Jesus, with the idea being that Jesus' path is our path as well. We've mentioned throughout the book uh, the importance of the cross in the book of Revelation. The second coming really takes uh, second stage to the cross. The cross is the primary fi fixture and feature in the book of Revelation. And so in being identified with this mighty angel and being given a little version of the scroll that had been taken by the Lamb in chapter 5 is a reminder that the, the Lamb's path is our path as well. That just as the Lamb suffered, we suffer as well. Just as the Lamb was slain, we are slain as well. But of course, in identifying us with Jesus, it also identifies us with His authority. Um, the fact that it's a scroll that identifies us with His Word um, and the fact that it's sweet to taste but bitter in the stomach reminds us that God's will and God's word are not always pleasurable as we're experiencing them. This, the fact that it, John eats the scroll and it tastes sweet but then is bitter um, is a reminder, one, for the church that the church will suffer. Uh, following God's word and following God's will will not always be pleasurable. It will not always be pleasant. It will not always be materially and earthly good. But then also a reminder uh, that there are two ways to react to God's word and God's will. Uh, one is to experience them as sweet to the taste, and the other is to experience them as bitter in the stomach. And so uh, it could be a picture that uh, the church experiences God, God's word and his will as sweet, while the world in rejecting them experiences them as bitter. Uh, but it also is a reference to that authority. We are given the word. Uh, we are given God's will as the church. And that word and that will are very much uh, the same uh, as it, they were for Jesus in his life. They are ultimately uh, a spiritual authority and not an earthly authority. And we saw that in chapter 9 where we saw that God was carrying out his judgment on all the nations of the earth, but the church was not the one carrying out the judgment. Instead, the church was very much the one being uh, persecuted and killed by the nations. And so God was judging the nations for doing that, but the church was not the one uh, taking retribution. The church was not the one getting revenge. And we see that here as well. G.K. Beale, in reflecting on this chapter, 
says the nature of our authority is linked here with the proclamation of the gospel message and the judgment of God. It is also linked with the sweetness of God's word to his people and with the bitterness that comes from the inevitable widespread rejection of that message and the consequent suffering of the church. Consider Jesus' words, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. How is our authority linked with that of Jesus? Have the times of the church's greatest temporal authority been the times of its weakest spiritual authority? And this is something that we struggle with in the American church. We seem to equate temporal authority with spiritual authority. And maybe we've never seen that more so than in the last four years or so. And yet what this chapter reminds us is that our authority is only linked with the gospel message and the judgment of God. Our authority is only spiritual and not temporal. And so like Jesus who said that he had the authority to lay down his life, that is where our authority lies. We have the authority to lay down our life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, knowing that the the one who has ultimately, ultimate authority will raise us back up again. Ultimately, where we demonstrate how much we are aligned with Jesus Christ, how much faith in him we have, is not in how we vote. Uh, it is not how much political power we might hold. Uh, it is not how big our churches are, how much money is in our church budgets. It really is in whether we have enough faith in his authority, even over the dead, to lay down our life for the sake of the gospel. Not that we all need to be physical martyrs, but that we lay down our rights, our preferences, our money, our time, so that others might come to know, to hear and to know the gospel message. And so... This chapter is a reminder for us to put the emphasis back on our spiritual authority as the church and not try to lay hold of temporal authority that is not the church's to hold. But then uh, it is also a reminder, this idea that it's sweet to the taste but bitter in the stomach is a reminder that, yes, we do have this gospel message and we have the judgment of God Uh, We do carry that message that it is only in responding in faith to God that we are saved. It is only by accepting Jesus Christ. Uh, And we do carry that message that if we do not, that there is judgment that comes. But the fact that it is sweet to taste the scroll but bitter in the stomach reminds us of Jesus' sorrow. If Jesus is the head, if we follow in the path, then we never announce the judgment of God with glee. We never are happy to see people perish. And that is one of the things, again, that we struggle with in the 21st century American church, that when we have experienced persecution, uh, even as small as our persecution is, um, or when things haven't gone our way, or we see people doing things that the Bible speaks against, and then something happens to them that we almost rejoice in God's judgment coming. 
And yet that's not what we see in Scripture uh, from God, and it's not what we see in Scripture from Jesus. The context, in fact, for this idea of eating the scroll that is sweet to the taste comes from Ezekiel chapter 3, where the prophet is, Ezekiel is given a scroll, and God tells him to take the scroll and eat it, and he eats it, and it's sweet to the taste. And it's also in Ezekiel where we read in chapter 18 and verse 23 where God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? And then later on, a couple verses later, in Ezekiel 18 verse 32, For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. One of the best books I've ever written is a newer book. It actually came out this, this year called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And in, as part of that book, he interacts with the work of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who talks about God's natural work and God's strange work. Uh, that there are things that God naturally does, uh, and then there's things that he does uh, almost unnaturally. And it comes from Isaiah chapter uh, 28, verse 21, um, which says that the, the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rise in wrath as at the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his unexpected work, and to perform his task, his unfamiliar task. Or some translations say his strange work or his alien work. Lamentations 3.33, which says that God does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. And so, uh, Dane Ortland, in interacting with Goodwin's uh, comments on this strange work, says that uh, Goodwin is drawing out the Bible's revelation of what God's deepest heart is, that is what he delights to do, what is most natural to him. Mercy is natural to him. Punishment is unnatural. Some of us view God's heart as brittle, easily offended. Some of us view his heart as cold, uneasily moved. The Old Testament gives us a God whose heart defies these innate human expectations of who he is. And we need to be careful that we, as we read Revelation, as we uh, bring Revelation uh, into our homes, into our churches, into our culture, that we don't make it out as though judgment is God's natural work and mercy his strange work. But that is so often how we read Revelation. That is so often how we teach Revelation. That is why Revelation so often isn't seen as being certain comfort in uncertain times. Because as I said way back when we started this series, the way we often view Revelation is that Jesus is coming back and he's pissed. That he is coming to judge and he is coming to damn. uh, And that is what he delights to do. Uh, And so that's what how, how we tend to interpret the judgments of God. But in seeing that the scroll is, is bitter in John's stomach, we are called to remember that just as 
God's will and his word, his plan for the end of human history, for the church age and bringing all things to their end, just as it makes John's stomach bitter. We should not take pleasure in it because God does not take pleasure in it. And that's not theorizing. That's what the word says. Again, his wrath is his strange work. It's his alien work. He does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so he calls us to repent and live. He is calling us to life. Uh, and that really is what we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so we, we need to be careful that we do not rejoice in the judgment, even the judgment of our enemies. And in this interlude, uh, is between the sixth and seventh trumpets, just like the interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. And the sixth seal, uh, as we were reminded even last week with the sixth trumpet, is the, uh, the saints crying out, How long, O Lord? And so then the, in the sixth seal, in the sixth trumpet, is God pouring out the judgment to avenge the blood of his saints? And yet immediately after that, in chapter 9, we are... Reminded in chapter 10 that even that it's bitter to us. It is not something we take pleasure in. We take pleasure in his will. We take pleasure in his word. Uh, But there's an aspect to it that is unpleasurable. And so we see that with Jesus at the head, we follow even his example and even Jesus himself as he proclaimed the woes Uh, over the city of Jerusalem in his final days. He weeps over the city. He takes no pleasure in proclaiming woes over Jerusalem, but instead he weeps. And so if Jesus is our head, if we are uh, with him in his suffering, then we will also be with him in his sorrow over the unrepentant, in his sorrow over those who are covered in judgment instead of being wrapped up in his mercy. And this is a good reminder for us. We're filming this in this particular episode in September of 2020. We're less than two months away from a presidential election here in our country. Uh, And this whole season has uh, been filled on social media and on uh, and really everywhere else with drawing battle lines and, and defining who's an enemy and Uh, We need to be careful that as we see certain things play out, that we don't come to the point where we are rejoicing over judgment. But instead, we rejoice in God's mercy. That is his natural work. And so whatever it is that we're going through currently, whether it is the pandemic or whether it's something else, we are given that certain comfort in whatever uncertain times we're living in, that Jesus is on the throne that Jesus is on the way, that Jesus is in the know, and that Jesus is at the head. Thank you for joining us as we looked at Revelation chapter 10, and next week we will push into Revelation chapter 11, looking at the two witnesses.